So let's give our attention now to God's holy and inerrant word, beginning in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your grace, you have provided us with everything that we have. And so, we now return to you these gifts, these tithes, these offerings um, that you have given to us. And we ask that you would use them in this world, that you would use them in order that your kingdom would be revealed here and throughout the world, and that the wonderful good news of the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. And Father, as we Prepare now to sit beneath your word. We pray that the same good news, the same gospel we long to see go out into all the world, that it would be proclaimed to us this morning, that we would see the good news, that we are far more broken than we could have ever possibly imagined, and know 
that we are also at the same time, because of the person and work of Jesus, far more loved, far more secure, far more accepted and approved of than we could have ever dreamed possible. And so we pray that this good news would fall upon our hearts and would change us from the inside out. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Children ages 3 to 6 are dismissed to Children's Church, so you can make your way to the back of the sanctuary. You'll be taken to Children's Church. Uh, this summer, we've been, um, we've been looking at some selected passages at the end of I- Isaiah. And, uh, and we've been looking recently at what scholars call the servant songs. And in Isaiah, we've seen that there's this mysterious servant figure that shows up, which we later find out from all the gospel writers is that this mysterious figure in Isaiah is actually Jesus. And I think I told you several weeks ago that if I had a title for this entire series, it would be the servant and the hope, because really everything that we're learning about the servant from Isaiah, everything we're learning about Jesus, um, who he is, And what he came to do is really the basis of our hope. And we're going to learn more about that hope and what it is in the weeks to come. But staring us in the face this morning is this passage that tells us why the servant, why this servant and his work are the basis of our hope, right? It is this beautifully written song that we see, and it tells us not just that the servant suffered and died, But this song in particular tells us why the servant suffered and died, the meaning of the servant's life and death. You know, little kids, very early on, they learn that they can prolong conversations with you, um, and they can just, quite simply, wear their parents out um, with one simple little word. And that word is not no, that word is why, right? And um, one of my kids who will remain nameless this morning, um, a couple of years ago caught me getting ready uh, to leave the house and come to work, and this child asked me, what you doing, Daddy? And I said, well, I'm putting on my jacket. I'm getting ready to leave. And um, I should have pretended that I didn't hear the question or something, because I didn't realize I had kicked the hornet's nest. Because um, then, then I got why, okay? <laughs> and so why? Well, um, I'm getting ready to leave, and i got to go to the church because that's where I work. Um, why? Because Daddy has to work. Um, that's my job. Well, why? Because I work to provide for you and for our family. Why? Uh, because God made me to work, and He called me to be a preacher. Uh, why? And at this moment, I was either going... I had two options before me, I felt like. I was either going to punish this child or sit on the edge of my bed and weep, right? I mean, two minutes into a conversation with a four-year-old, armed with one word, why? And I'm like, start questioning my calling. I'm about to, you know, um, Jennifer, I need you in here now. Um, Help. Um, But you know, why questions, they're, they're digging questions, right? They dig beneath the what, right, to expose the meaning, the why. And, um, you know, this is, a, this is a very intimidating passage to preach, right, because it's one of 
the best passages, one of the, maybe the single best chapter in all of the Bible, really, for explaining the meaning of Jesus' life and his death. And, you know, so I would say to you this morning that no matter where you find yourself this morning, whether you, you think you're convinced or unconvinced, believing or unbelieving or struggling to believe or, or skeptical, I think this is a good Sunday to be here. Um, because we're talking about the why of Jesus' suffering and death. I mean, this is the heartbeat. This is at the center, at the very foundation of Christianity. But, you know, it's also a very intimidating passage because there's just so much here. Uh, the breadth of what's in this passage is amazing. And so there's no way that we're going to be able to talk about everything in this passage. And so last night I decided that what I would do this morning and share with you, uh, or, or walk through these verses with you like this. Every scholar who looks at this passage recognizes that there are five distinct stanzas, each three verses long. And so I want to walk through these with you and share with you just what I think the main point of each of those stanzas are. And then at the end, we're going to offer up some, um, some applications. So basically, six points. I want you to see the puzzling servant the upside-down servant, the sacrificial servant, the voluntary servant, and the exalted servant. And then we'll get to the last point, which is very technically phrased, so what? Um, So what do we do with all this, right? And if you're taking notes or want to take notes, I'll repeat these along the way for you. But first, the puzzling servant shows up in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. One author uh, calls these verses an enigma, right? It's a mystery, right? And we need to see, understand, and embrace this puzzling servant that's shown to us in these verses. How is it that this servant presents us with a puzzle? Well, very simply, the puzzle is in the contrast, right? This servant acts wisely. He's righteous in all he does, and therefore he shall be lifted up. He shall be high, he shall be exalted, right? But this wise servant is also going to be marred and brutalized to the point of being a revolting shock to the nations. See, the word astonished in verse 14, it's a very strong, violent word. And elsewhere it's used often of places that have been devastated by war and brought to ruin, right? And it's used here to say, basically, that if you saw this brutalized servant, if you looked at him, it would turn your stomach inside out and make you want to vomit. Because look, to translate that his appearance will be so marred that he will be beyond human semblance is a very accurate translation. Because Isaiah is saying that when people look at him, the question on their lips will not just be, is this the servant who acted wisely? Now, it'll be a question like this. Is that even human? He will be so brutalized. And that's the puzzle, right? How can this servant be both incredibly victorious and triumphant and successful and also experience such defeat such suffering and such loss. I mean, the circumstances 
of his life and death seem to be, all be evidence that God must be against him and must hate him. But the threefold exaltation at the beginning of the passage, it boldly asserts that he must be loved by God, right? He was perfectly wise and righteous. Now, I want you to hold on to this tension of this puzzling servant uh, a, a bit longer before we try to resolve some of this tension. But even as this puzzling servant, right, is, creates a certain tension in our understanding of who Jesus was, um, uh, let's bring the tension a little bit closer to home before we move on. I know that your story is different and distinct and unique from mine, right? Um, but I think we probably share some things in common, right? The hardness of life and suffering and pain and hurt and loss, when it comes into my life, and sometimes it comes in very, very hard, right? In those moments, do you know what I often do? <laughs> I often start wondering where God is. You know, like the psalmist, how long, O Lord? How long will you hide your face from me? Right? I begin to feel, God, is this right? Do you love me at all? Because I feel like if you loved me, I wouldn't be going through some of these things. You know, the tension, as one preacher puts it, is that God's wise love is very, very compatible with the, with the experience of hardness and difficulty and suffering in this life. It's kind of a bummer to end the first point there, but you need to sit with me in that point for a little bit longer, this puzzle that we have here. The second, let's look at the upside-down servant in uh, chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. Let me set the stage for you a bit. Verse 1 mentions the arm of the Lord, right? And for a couple of chapters, the arm of the Lord has featured prominently in the discussion. In 51 verse 19, the arm of the Lord was called to awake. In 52.6, the arm of the Lord pledged the Lord's own presence. In 52.8, the arm of the Lord foresaw the Lord coming to Zion. In 52.12, the arm of the Lord has been bared in saving action. In other words, there's a lot of anticipation leading into this phrase, right? It's been building. You know, wow, when the arm of the Lord finally comes, it's going to be so impressive, so amazing. But wait, here's the arm of the Lord in verses 1 through 3. And it, or he, is not impressive at all. Right? He had no form or majesty, no beauty. He was despised, and he was rejected. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was someone you would hide your face from. Do you know, you know, here's what all of that's saying. It's saying when the arm of the Lord finally came, when the people saw the arm of the Lord, the servant, and if you saw this arm of the Lord, you would have laughed at him too. You would have thought, he's a joke. He's a worthless nobody. I mean, he's the king He's the arm of the Lord, and he's the exact opposite of how you would think he would come. Right? He's the upside-down servant, the opposite of how you would have expected salvation to come. There's nothing impressive on his resume is what these verses are saying. Nothing extraordinary about him. 
He didn't appear special at all to anyone. You remember that story when Jesus, he went back to his hometown of Nazareth, and the people said, is not this the carpenter? Right, the son of Mary, the mother of James? I mean, why did they mention Jesus' mother and not his father? Because in this culture, it's a patriarchal society. You always mention the father. It's because from the start, they're saying, we're not even sure who his father is. Right? He's a nothing. He's an, it's just a plain, ordinary carpenter. And we're suspicious even of his birth. You know, that word esteemed at the end of verse 3, it's an accounting word. Right? It means that when people looked at him and started calculating his value, they said he's worthless. He's a nothing. He's unimportant. And he does not matter. See, we get what that means. Right? Because some of us are young, and we're working hard, and we're trying to distinguish ourselves and set ourselves apart, right? We want to get ahead and build our resumes. Why? Because, so that we can prove to ourselves, so that we can prove to our parents, and we can prove to our friends and whoever else that we have value, that we can contribute, that we're something, that we're significant, that we matter, and that we're important. And others of you... I won't say you're old, but you're more mature, right? Um, and, um, and you're trying to do the math too. Because you're trying to figure out and calculate if your life even really amounted to much. To anything, really. Did you do enough? Did you achieve enough? Right? Did you earn enough? You look to your resume to calculate your value, your worth, and your significance. Jesus had none of this. None of what we think adds up to a life of value and significance and worth. This upside-down service, he has come to turn your world upside down. He's come to recalibrate our accounting system, right? He's the arm of the Lord, God's servant. He is the Lord's salvation, right, for all the world. And if we would have seen him, we would have laughed at him too. We would have said, is this the arm of the Lord? He's a joke. He's so ordinary, so plain. Now listen, maybe, just maybe, we need our values readjusted. And maybe, just maybe, the arm of the Lord, his salvation, is usually revealed in very plain very ordinary ways. I want you to hold on to that thought for a few minutes. The third, the sacrificial servant in 53 verses 4 through 6. And proportionately, let me spend a little bit more time here because this is where we get into the heart, the meaning of this servant's life and death. Verse 4 says that this servant has taken up and carried our burdens. Right? The heart of Christianity, the heart of the meaning of Jesus' life and death is in the prepositions. Okay? Prepositions, right? He was marred. Remember, he was disfigured. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed, and that word tr- crushed, right? It means to be trampled to death. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. With his stripes, 
we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The gospel is in the prepositions. He lived the perfectly wise life and righteous life, and his reward was incomparable suffering and death. That's the what, but the why is that he suffered and died for you, right? He was a sacrificial offering in your place and mine. We deserve death. He did not, right? But he was the sacrificial servant, right? He lived the life we could not live and died the death we should have died. Look, I get that sacrifice for us is somewhat of an abstract concept to us, you know, but it wasn't for the people Isaiah was writing to. They lived under a sacrificial system. Not now, but sometime later, go read Leviticus chapter 1 to see the kinds of prescriptions that they had to follow under this system. And think about how it would feel tangibly, not abstractly, to understand sacrifice, right? Jennifer and I, we grill steaks maybe, maybe twice a year. We'll go out splurge. We'll get fillets, right? Birthday, anniversary, some kind of celebration like that. We only do it twice a year because steaks are expensive, <laughs> costly, right? How much more costly for these people? Not a couple of steaks, a whole bowl. And if you're from a nomadic tribe whose only real currency is your livestock, then when you are told to give up an entire bull and watch it burn on the fire, it hurts. It's costly. You feel it. But you know what? We get, when we go get our steaks, we get them shrink-wrapped at Kroger. Maybe fresh market if it's really important, you know, um, the celebration. But my point is the butcher does our dirty work, right? Not so in the sacrificial system. You know, to offer the sacrifice of a bull, you would bring this bull in, and you would lay your hand on the bull's head, <laughs> symbolizing that this bull was about to get everything you deserved. Right? Transferring your griefs, your sorrows, your transgressions, your iniquities upon this bull. And then you would take a knife. This is important. You, not the priest, he didn't do your dirty work either. You would take a knife and slit that bull's throat. And you would take the blood, collect it all, and throw it on the sides of the altar. Right? Then you would chop and cut that animal to pieces and burn it on the fire. I, I need you to imagine what that would be like right? Your muscles tense and sore, sweat pouring from you as you struggle with that huge animal to slit its throat and put it to death. I mean, sawing through muscle and tendon and bone. The smells you would experience, the sounds you would hear, right? The matted blood and fur getting baked in the hot desert sun. Right? Flies and bugs gathered to the death and to the stink, right? The smell, you know, meat on the, meat on the fire in my neighborhood smells good. Somebody's barbecuing. But were you to burn fur 
and hooves and every, it would not smell good. It would not smell pleasant at all to you and I. I mean, if you can imagine that, every one of your senses was involved and assaulted, right? It was costly. It was gross. It was violent, right? It was horrific. It was pungent, that smell. And Leviticus 1 says it over and over as it's describing what what you would do under this system. And it says that that smell is a pleasing aroma to God. To you and I, nauseating. But it was pleasing to God because it was the smell of substitution. And God loves the smell of substitution. Loves it. Look, this is the heart of Christianity, right? The meaning of Jesus' life and death. The gospel is in the prepositions, right? This is the good news. He loved you so much that he was marred and brutalized for you. His blood was sprinkled to cleanse many nations, 52 verse 15. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows for you, verse 3. He was wounded and crushed, trampled to death for you, verse 5. The puzzling servant, yes, the upside-down servant, he was the sacrificial servant. All right, fourth, and we're going to move through these final two stanzas, stanzas pretty quickly. Fourth, the voluntary servant. Verses seven, and nine, 7 through 9 tell us that the servant Jesus, right, he voluntarily went to his death. Like a sheep before her shearers or her slaughterers, I don't know, um, he went calmly. But unlike a sheep, he went knowingly. He went voluntarily to the altar of the cross, right, to be a sacrifice for us. Though he knew no violence, verse 9, he became the object of violence. Though he was always just and righteous, verse 8, he voluntarily became the object of injustice and oppression and judgment for us. One preacher really helped me think about the nature of Jesus' voluntary sacrifice and death, and it's because of this. We often assume that Jesus' voluntary death is not that unique because we hear stories of others who have lost their lives for others, right? I mean, just this past week, hopefully you took Monday off for Memorial Day. And hopefully you remembered at some point that the reason you have that day off is because men and women serving our country lost their lives to serve us and to serve our country. And we've heard lots of other stories, right, of people who lose their lives in an effort to rescue others. And it's right and good that we pause and we remember and we honor those people. But here's the thing. These brave men and women, and maybe one day you or I, right, we can only choose the circumstances of death. Because the truth is, we're all going to die right? It's unavoidable. I don't like to think about it like that, but it's unavoidable. So in this sense, even the heroic deaths we celebrate and remember and honor are just the choosing of the circumstances of death. There was only one man who ever lived who didn't have to die 
He had acted wisely every moment of his life. He was the righteous arm of the Lord, verse 9. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. His life alone merited life everlasting. He didn't have to die at all. He was the maker of all things. In this way, his death is the only completely voluntary death ever. Then fifth, I want you to think through very briefly with me the main point of this final stanza in verses 10 through 13. The exalted servant. See, verse 10, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. All that suffering and death. And then finally the reward, right? Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. But listen, think with me. What will be his satisfaction? What is his joy? Right? What, what is it that made everything we just talked about worth it to him? It, it's this, that through him, verse 11, he will make many to be accounted righteous. And that's kind of a strange way to phrase it, maybe, for us. But it's good because it gets across another accounting word in the passage, right? You and I, we are so desperately grasping and striving and calculating and adding things up to prove to ourselves and others that we matter, that we have value, that we're worth something, and that we're important. And you know why we do that, right? It's because we look at all the evidence in our lives, and we start to think, maybe I'm not worth anything. Maybe I'm not really significant or important. I mean, we are deeply afraid that at the end of all things, we don't really matter. What these verses are saying is that Jesus' joy, His satisfaction, what made it all worth it for Him, was to give you the record of His righteousness. So that when God, His Father, looks at you, He sees you as if you had done everything the servant did. That he would treat you as righteous as he was. Right? Do you, if you wonder if you matter or have value, this servant says you matter so much that he voluntarily gave up his life to be a sacrifice for you. He looked like a failure to the world. But he turned the world upside down, right? When he brought salvation, not with his credentials of power, wealth, status, but when he brought salvation through a cross. This puzzling servant. He was high, and he was lifted up upon a cross for you. Now, finally, very technical, so what? Um, I'm going to try to pull together a lot of these loose threads that I've left hanging here very quickly. With three brief things. You need, these are the things you need to t- take away from this. Things you need to do. You need to see that this servant's life and death was for you personally. And you need to ground your life on this servant's life and death. And then third, you need to follow this servant's pattern of life and death. Okay, so what? First, see that this servant's life and death were for you personally. T.R. Birch wrote that each sin 
of every sinner would be like a separate wound in the heart of this man of sorrows. It's so easy to give assent, I think, to the abstract idea of sacrifice. But you become a Christian when Jesus' sacrifice stops being an abstraction to you. And you realize that his life and death were for you personally. That when you snapped at your kids this morning, that when you manipulated your husband yesterday, that when you were bitter against your wife last week, that when you looked down on your neighbor with arrogance and pride, that when you deceived your boss and you reacted with hatred in your heart, when you worshipped romance or sex or money or applause or whatever, each sin and every sin of yours was like a separate wound in the heart of this man of sorrows. You know, I used to look when I was, I guess, junior high age, you know, we'd go to the mall with our friends, you know, we thought we were so cool. Um, and I remember these magic eye posters that were in the, in the mall, you know, just this abstract kind of picture, you know, this three-by-three three framed picture that was just nothing but crazy symbols. You couldn't tell what any of it was. And the, the deal was you had to sit there and you had to stare at it. And you had to stare long enough and hard enough until finally, until finally it all came together and you saw this 3D image of a castle or a dolphin or whatever it was popped out at you. And you saw, wow, you said, wow there it is. I see it, right? You know, maybe, just maybe, the arm of the Lord, His salvation, is usually revealed in very ordinary and very plain ways. You have to stare for a long time sometimes, right? Reading the Bible, disciplined, monotonous, mundane study of God's Word, disciplined prayer, commitment to community in your life, right? Regularly attending and listening to sermons with way too many points, like this morning, right? It's in the ordinary, the plain, the easy to dismiss stuff that God normally reveals His salvation. That this servant's life and death were for you personally. Surely, He didn't have to die. Surely, the one who made everything couldn't be held down by nails on wood. If he didn't want to, it didn't have to happen. Nails did not hold him there. His love for you held him upon that cross. Right? And when you see that, it changes everything. All right, second, so what? Ground your life on this servant's life and death. I once heard someone talking about um, what was involved, uh, some of the architecture behind, or, or maybe I should say beneath, the building of some of these giant, tall si- skyscrapers. And I don't remember any of the details because I really don't care about architecture. But I do remember that um, the whole point of this was to say that it was necessary to build these super tall skyscrapers that... Uh, the taller it was, the deeper the foundation had to be. You know, stories and stories beneath the surface, the foundation was sunk. Sometimes the foundation was as deep as the skyscraper was high. 
You know, oftentimes Christianity is confused with morality, as if to say that to be a Christian is to try to be very moral. And I would say to you, sure, Christianity has a moral system, but that's not what Christianity is at all. Right? The heart of Christianity is the good news that God himself came, and he came to live the perfect life you could not live and to die the shameful, horrific death you should have died. Right? It, listen, if you want to soar to the heights, and I'm talking about the heights you just wish you could go and dream you could go, a place where, you, where criticism and hurt and disappointment, even loss, great loss, could never crush you. If you want to get there and if you want to get to the place where all the success in the world and achievement could never make you proud and never make you horribly arrogant, a place where you would be truly free, then you have to ground your life. You have to take this servant's life and death deep into your heart. You have to sink it down all the way in. You will only soar as high as deep as you get this gospel into your heart. You know, build your identity on him, I am saying. Put your whole trust in him. Look, all kinds of tensions meet and are resolved at the sacrificial altar of the cross, right? It's where the puzzle of the obedient, suffering servant makes sense. He was a sacrifice for you. It's where God's perfect holiness and love meet and kiss. It's where truth and love collide, where holiness and mercy embrace one another. Build there, and you will grow both in a humility and a confidence that puzzles the wisdom of the world. All right, last thing, finally. Follow this servant's pattern of life and death. This is a little disconcerting, but if you read through your Bible you will soon realize that those men and women who follow the servant, they all experience a great amount of suffering and trial and hardship in life. They end up finding out that God's love and the experience of difficulty and suffering and hurt and sorrow are very compatible with one another. Right? They end up learning the upside-down nature of God's kingdom, that greatness isn't defined by power, wealth, and status, but by humility and generosity and service of others. That only in costly sacrificial death, you will never help your friends, you will never help the poor, you will never help the oppressed without costly sacrifice. All life flows out of death. This servant teaches you that. Right? You know, I understand that it may sound, so, sound somewhat scary to follow the pattern of the upside-down servant, but if your identity is in him, it's untouchable. And if you know his love for you personally, if you realize that the meaning of Jesus' life and death was for you, that his costly redeeming love for you and not the nails held him upon this cross, then we become free. We become free to serve others in the same way we've been served by Jesus. So I'm asking you at the very end here, do you understand the meaning of Jesus' life and death? 
come to him. He will embrace you with the same arms that were stretched out upon the cross for you. And if you already understand the meaning of Jesus' life and death, please, I beg you, don't try to go past it to something else, to morality or religious behavior or any of that, but go deeper into it. This is the heartbeat of Christianity. Good news for sinners like you and me. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the prophet Isaiah. We thank you that he wrote this song for us. That in this song we might lift our eyes by faith to see the Lord Jesus Christ. To see that puzzling servant who died for us. To see the upside-down servant who came to turn our worlds upside down to see the sacrificial servant, the one who voluntarily gave his life, the one who is even now exalted and lifted on high and who takes his delight, his satisfaction, and his joy in seeing that his righteousness has been given to us, that we might know his love and the love of our Father in heaven. And Father, we do pray that it would change us. Help us to see this servant's life and death, what they mean for us personally, that he died for us. Help us, we pray, to build our identity here upon the servant who gave his life for us. And help us, O Father, free in him to follow his pattern. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.